Welcome to Recollections. Um, well, the note that Jessie Ackerman left us was that her was the last doll her grandmother gave to her. It's in the fashion of Mary Todd Lincoln, which was a sort of a brand they had back then at the time. You know, so this is say roughly 1860s to 1870s. It's a porcelain head. Um, she has the dark wavy hairs, um, blue eyes, and really cheery red cheeks. Amy Studman, the collections manager at the Reese Museum, is describing a doll from the museum's collections that once belonged to a woman named Jessie Ackerman. In her lifetime, Ackerman was probably the most traveled woman in the Victorian era. She was an activist, she was a writer, she was a lecturer, she was a preacher. She traveled the world eight times. Ackerman collected hundreds of items on her travels, many of which are now stored in the collections at the Reese Museum. And this childhood doll that Ackerman left behind is symbolic of what drove her to tour around the world, a quest to improve the rights of women and girls. Today, we're learning a little bit about that quest and how, along the way, Ackerman managed to buck most of the conventions of her day. Jessie Ackerman grew up in Chicago in the 1860s and 70s. From a young age, she was influenced by her mother's work in the temperance movement. At the time, the movement was going through a period of activism now remembered as the Great Crusade. Um, It was very exceptional because women kind of left their houses, went to the bar halls, and basically prayed for all the men. And apparently her mother was very involved, and that's sort of where she got her leanings towards temperance. It was also how Ackerman learned about social activism. Since women weren't allowed to participate directly in politics, they used other tactics instead conducting demonstrations, creating petitions, and giving public speeches. Ackerman started using these tactics when she moved to the West Coast in the 1880s and became a temperance missionary worker. Out in California, she joined the Good Templars, which was a prohibition group, and then went on to be involved with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, or WCTU, promoted temperance and mission work. They sent Ackerman on a mission trip to Alaska to deal with the burgeoning populations of young men who were working in the timber and mining industries. They saw these men running wild in the bar halls and, you know, and gambling all their money away. So they sent women up there to train them or bring them back to the folds of Christianity and, and good moral standing. So, and she was part of that. In 1888, Ackerman went to a convention of the National WCTU in New York City. The leaders of the WCTU admired the work Ackerman had done in Alaska, and they decided she should become a world missionary traveler. Ackerman left on her first world tour in 1889, and early on, she started to pay attention to the low status of women in many countries. Later, she published an article about these early observations. Amy read an excerpt. Now when I was going out across the world for the first time, I determined to know what women are, if they are people or not. The first country I came to, I picked up the Constitution. It read, all persons over 21 years of age, except lunatics and idiots, are entitled to vote. Then, in the margin, in very small letters, were the words, 
persons doesn't include women. Ackerman's official role on her travels was to do mission work with a focus on temperance, but she began to campaign heavily for women's suffrage and other rights. One of her issues that she talked about was of the pay gap between men and women, and she thought that women should have the skills and the education to go out in the working fields to able to support themselves. Ackerman campaigned on every continent except Antarctica. She traveled by train, camelback, ship, and elephant. Always enthusiastic for new experiences, she climbed the masts of ships, went into coal mines, and swam in the ocean with pearl divers. And she did much of this while wearing the standard Victorian dress of the day. This is, you know, 1890s, 1900. Imagine, you know, the wardrobe that women had at that time, um, what they wore on a daily basis. They were basically covered from neck to foot. So here she is in India on in a cart, no, you know, no air conditioning or anything in these heavy, heavy dresses and petticoats and stockings. And, and so when she got back to her room and here's covered in dust from a dirt road, uh, imagine <laughs> trying to wash that out. Ackerman was willing to go the extra mile, so to speak, for her campaigns. And she was much more hands-on than many other social reformers of her day. Amy has a story about a time Ackerman went to England to recover from malaria. While staying at a castle with a wealthy member of the WCTU, Ackerman decided to change things up. Apparently she got so bored, she came to London and put on the clothes of a working woman uh, and went to the streets to sell flowers and, and ribbons and things from a cart. And she did this just to see how women were treated or how they lived in these slum areas of the, these big cities. Uh, yes, after getting malaria, that's what you do. <laughs> so uh, after that, she became very involved in working women's rights. Ackerman's willingness to try new experiences and see through other people's eyes eventually led her to become critical of Western imperialism. Like many Victorian-era missionaries, Ackerman had begun her world travels believing in the superiority of Western culture. But over time, she began to protest the colonial policies of countries like England. In her travels in China, for example, Ackerman witnessed rampant opium addiction and placed the blame squarely with the British Empire. She certainly opened her eyes and understood that it wasn't just a Chinese problem, it wasn't just a national problem, it was internationally in scope that where did this opium come from? Well, these large Anglo countries were making their money by pushing drugs and alcohol on a nation that was not familiar with that before contact. As Ackerman learned to be more critical of Western influences, she also started to value the beliefs and teachings of peoples across the world. In many ways, she transformed into a humanitarian. When she actually got out into these different nations and countries and met these people, she realized that we're all humanity. And there was a change in her rhetoric. Um, later on, she traveled around Japan with a Buddhist scholar um, doing speaking engagements with him. So here she was presenting the Christian viewpoint along with the Buddhist viewpoint on the same stage. And she, she always relied on her Christian faith for her own strength. But later on, I think she realized that other people think different, and that's fine. 
In the 19-teens, Ackerman came back to the United States to continue her organizing work, and for reasons that aren't entirely clear, she ended up living in Johnson City in the 1920s. Uh, we really don't know exactly how Miss Ackerman found Johnson City. The story is she was on a train traveling um, south, and she was so tired and just wanted to sleep. So she told the conductor to stop at the, the next town, and that town happened to be Johnson City. And so she got a hotel room <laughs> and, I guess, went to sleep. And finally, when she woke up refreshed, she realized how to, what a beautiful place this was. Later, when Ackerman moved away in the 1930s, she donated a lifetime of personal belongings to what was then the East Tennessee State Teachers College, later to become East Tennessee State University. Amongst these items were artwork and crafts made by women across the world. She wanted these the people who were studying to have that experience of seeing things, international things, and realize that the world is far larger than, first of all, East Tennessee, and certainly larger than America, and certainly larger than just the Anglo-centric part of the world. Ackerman died in California in 1951, and there's still parts of her life that are a mystery. She never talked or wrote much about herself because she wanted people to remember her for her work and not for her personal life. Given how much she accomplished, despite the political, religious, and social expectations of her era, it's safe to say she's left more than enough for us to remember. Recollections is a production of the B. Carol Reese Museum, a unit of the Center for Appalachian Studies and Services at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Lynch Thomason, with assistance from the staff at the Reese Museum. Special thanks to WETS for the use of their studios. You can find us at etsu.edu slash recollections, and remember to subscribe to never miss an episode.